Friends of the podcast, welcome back to another episode of the What If Project. My name is Glenn, and uh, this is episode number 77. Can you believe it? 77 episodes in, and uh, today we're talking to Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza about their new book called Activist Theology, and you need to get ready to have your mind blown wide open. Uh, And I think by the time you get to the end of this episode, you're going to be ready to go like do something. So uh, Dr. Robin has a great uh, word for you. Uh, They do really great work in the world, and I'm excited to uh, share them with you today. So um, anyway, real quick, a couple things, housekeeping items, I guess you could say. Uh, Number one, if you could, head over to iTunes, Spotify, wherever it is that you listen to the show, and give it a rating. Why? Because the more ratings there are, that does something mathematically with the algorithms. I don't know. I don't understand. I'm not a I'm not a math whiz, but something happens in the virtual world when there are more ratings on a show so that when people search for something that the show has to do with, like for us, God, spirituality, faith, whatever, uh, there's a greater chance that this show will pop up in their feed. So right now we've got 43 or 44 ratings. Thank you to everyone who has given a rating. Thank you. All five stars, one four star. We still love that person. Anyway, I'm just kidding. Go there and leave an honest, an honest rating. So if you if you hate it, go ahead. Put one star. That's okay. If you love it, give it five stars. If you're not sure, give it three. You could also leave a review so you could write a little something. Uh, if the show has impacted you, um, if the show has challenged you, if you hate the show, you could also leave uh, reviews there. So what, whatever it is, just please go there and leave a rating uh, so that people. Uh, have a greater chance of coming across the the work that uh, we are doing in this place. What if Project Community um, is a Facebook group, uh, a closed Facebook group, where you can go uh, to find people like yourself. So maybe you're in a spot where you're asking questions, you've got some doubts, you're not too sure um, about the traditions that you were handed when you were younger. Uh, Maybe you're pushing back against some things. It's a place where you can go to find people like yourself who are exploring their faith. They've got questions. They've got doubts. They're in a a wilderness sort of space. Uh, You can find people just like you. People share resources. They ask their questions. They share their ideas. uh, And everybody, the great thing is everybody in there gets along. So there's no arguing. There's no bickering. There's no fighting. Uh, It's just everybody sharing their ideas and loving on each other and uh, getting along. And that's really what this project is all about, right? So if this is your first time uh, dropping by the podcast, the What If Project kind of explores the question of what if there are ways of understanding God and faith and spirituality that are different than the ways in which our traditions have handed us. So like, for example, maybe you grew up in an evangelical church and you were taught all about how people are going to go to hell when they die if they don't believe the right things about Jesus. And maybe now you're like, you know what? I don't really know if I believe that. I don't really know if that's the best way uh, to think about the Bible and the words of Christ. Cool. Me neither. Uh, so we can we can explore that together. We have lots of episodes about things just like that, where I talk about my own experience. We bring on guests who are much more knowledgeable than me. They talk about their research, their findings. So lots of different things that we explore here. But that community is a safe place for you to ask those kinds of questions and get a whole bunch of different uh, responses to it. Uh, Patreon.com slash whatifproject is a place where you can go to support the show financially. So if this thing has encouraged you, inspired you, pushed you forward in your faith, uh, and you want to show some 
extra love for the show, uh, go check it out, patreon.com slash whatifproject. And lastly, special music today is from my friend DJ KDOT. Uh, DJ KDOT and I work together. She's a great human being, super inspiring to me, uh, encouragement to me and everybody who's around her. Uh, so go check out her music. I will let the whole song play at the end of the show so you can get the full-on vibe of DJ KDOT. Uh, you're going to love her music. Uh, so go check it out, Apple Music, Spotify. Again, all the links will be in the show notes. Show her some love. Download her music. Pass it around. Leave her comments. Follow her on Facebook. Do all of the things. So that said, uh, again, thank you for dropping by. This is episode number 77. Enjoy it. My conversation with Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza. Peace. everybody welcome back to the what if project podcast uh today we have the honor of sitting down with my new friend dr robin henderson espinoza who is the author of their new book activist theology so dr robin welcome to the podcast it's great to have you thanks so much it's good to be here absolutely so before we jump into a few questions uh regarding your work and your book uh could you tell us a little bit about yourself who are you what do you do what makes you tick tell us all the stuff we've got to know about dr robin well, I think um, one of the first things that I like to say is that I'm born of a Mexican woman mm. who is not from this country and an Anglo man. And so that makes me a mixed race Latinx. And, and yet I move in the world with white passing privilege. And so even though I heavily identify as a Mexican American, I look and I'm socialized to be white. Um, and so I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And, you know, you, you ask like, what makes me tick? Um, that's something that I just spend a lot of time, a lot of time with, right? Mm -hmm. Like how do we, how do mixed race people who've been raised in the South um, live in mm -hmm. a world full of anti-black and anti-brownness and um yeah how do we how do we fully be who we are so mm -hmm. i i think a lot about that um and the other thing that people should know is that i grew up evangelical in the southern baptist church and i grew up in texas um, i'd like to call it northern mexico the republic mm -hmm. of texas um and i i left texas when i was 26 and moved to Chicago for seminary and began to explore other denominations, other religious expressions. And so had a bit of an awakening in my mid twenties around mm. religious experience, whatnot, but still feel very um, indebted to my evangelical history and, mm. and the roots there. I, I spent a lot of time thinking about root systems mm. um, and then I think the other thing that folks should know is that I do public theology and I teach at Duke Divinity School. Hmm. So on the one hand, I am entrenched in academia and I'm a professor. 
But on the other hand, I spend time in the public square of translating theology to action. That's awesome. I think that's one of the things that attracted me about your book is that in my experience, um, usually people who are very into activism and things like that is very emotional and there's not Uh always a whole lot of thought behind it. And what I really love about your book and love about the work that you do and what I've seen you do on Facebook and things like that is that you really bring the intellectual side to the passion side and merge the two together to Mm. create something that I think is very beautiful. So thank thank you. you. I feel indebted to people who, who take the time to read me well and Mm. who take the time to really consider the thing that I'm doing and it's not just um, activist theology is not a reactionary project and it's not just mm. a thinking project, but it is about putting our whole lives, our whole selves into the work of justice making. Mm. Um, and so I appreciate, I just appreciate what you said about um, bridging passion and thought together, because I think at, at that intersection or that bridge, you have the embodiment of who we are called to be. And so mm-hmm. I just appreciate um, you reading me in that way. Yeah, thank you. I, I appreciate you saying that. And I, I just was thinking back over my own experience as I was reading your book, because I went to seminary and I have a couple uh-huh. degrees as well. And, you know, it was always uh, very focused on, um, you know, doing good in the world and things like that. But, you know, there wasn't always a whole lot of there wasn't just a whole lot of thought. There wasn't a whole lot of intellectual side. So I guess it's just mm. when I when I read your stuff and I, I read what you do, it's like so many times like I come away from a, a conversation with an activist. I'm like, but why? Like why why are you why are you so passionate about this? Mm. And you really brought in the answers to those kinds of questions. So mm. I think thank you. Yeah. yeah. So to kind of kick us off, uh, what exactly is liberation theology? Talk to us about what is it and why does it matter to you? Why does it matter for the world? Yeah, so liberation theology is not new to it's not native to me. Mm-hmm. I did not make it up. Liberation theology is something that um, I want to say in the '60s began um, bubbling up throughout Latin America mm. um, when Jesuits began to really address poverty and really address um, why the church was not paying attention to poverty. And so Latin American liberation theology began bubbling up with a a particular phrase, which is God has a preferential option for the poor. Mm. And, and so that, that sort of started the conversation around, well, if, if, um, if the reign of God is to be here on earth, then it should include the poor. Mm. And you can see in different continents, different countries, different theologies bubbling up with the theme of liberation uh, Mm. or freedom. So you have post-colonial theology, you have black liberation theology, you have womanist theology, and they all have a strain of liberation or freedom and justice to them. Hmm. Um, but I follow um, certainly lots of different theologies, but I've been most deeply formed by Latin American liberation theology because I was trained by 
um, a Latin American feminist theologian in seminary hmm. and, and later uh, an African theologian in my PhD work. Um, so Latin American liberation theology ha- has a special place in my heart. And also, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm born to a Mexican woman, and so I pay attention to what's happening in Latin America mm. and the ways in which religious discourse and theological discourse bubbles up and how much of that discourse is in response to U.S. imperialism. Mm. And so when I use um, liberation theology, I am talking about sort of a global liberation scheme Mm. that combats U.S. imperialism and U.S. expansion in favor of the poor, the marginalized, the displaced, and so forth. But no, liberation theology is not something that I invented, but it is something that I follow um, fervently. Hmm. Now, excuse my my ignorance. This might be a kind of a stupid question, but if liberation theology had its roots, like you said, in the 60s in Latin America, um, as it's migrated to different countries, does it take on a different form? Does it keep the same kind of does it look the same as it did then, or does it has it progressed? Has it evolved? Has it changed? Well, I mean, certainly it's a, it's adapted and evolved as it is it um, as different countries pick it up. Hmm. So you know, throughout Latin America, you have a focus on the poor, but you also have a focus on on the land and climate change and sort of eco theology, hmm. and then as it migrates and evolves into post-colonial theology, it's, it's in response to the colonial project that U.S. and Britain have had um, in colonizing countries. So mm-hmm. it does take on a different form and shape, but, it, but still the, the roots of it are around liberation and freedom and justice. Mm. Which, is the, which is the way of Christ, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what I want to do, if you don't mind, is I want to uh, read for you a couple of excerpts uh, from your book and maybe just ask you to take us a little bit deeper into them. There's two quotes that kind of stuck out to me the most, and I'll read it, ask you a couple of questions, and then I just kind of let you dance around sure, it and go whatever sure. direction you want. So first one uh, comes from early on in the book, page 13, and you say, in many respects, I sit in this space of Holy Saturday, not knowing whether Easter Sunday will come. I fundamentally doubt our systems and I doubt my ability to bring about any sort of change with my three degrees in higher education and experience in organizing and movement work. I doubt our current systems because I don't believe that they have the imagination needed to achieve collective liberation. I doubt because so many of our systems are invested in extractive technologies that do not honor liberation relationality. I doubt because to doubt is to lean into divine imagination. So a couple questions. Number one, uh, maybe talk to me a little bit more about this idea of Holy Saturday uh, in relation specifically to liberation theology. And what do you mean uh, by not knowing whether Easter Sunday uh, will come? And then two, uh, that last line, I find that very intriguing. Uh, I doubt because to doubt is to lean into divine imagination. What exactly does that does that mean? And why does it strike me so so much? Yeah. So I talk about Holy Saturday because we don't have Easter Sunday and we don't have the resurrection without going through the death of Jesus. Mm. And, um, and so um, we, we oftentimes, I think during the Easter holiday, we, we get to Maundy Thursday and the foot washing, 
we get to Good Friday and the crucifixion and we skip over Saturday mm. and we move into Sunday into the resurrection and the hope filled life. And I really want to encourage people to sit in the darkness mm. of Saturday and sit in um, what if Sunday didn't come? Mm. What if the resurrection hadn't happened? What if we didn't have the stories that are collected about the the um, women finding the grave empty, right? Mm. So um, I I want us to sit in that a little bit because when we sit in the in the doubts, um, we we get a chance to imagine what is possible. Mm. And that's what I mean about divine imagination, because I, I believe um, that imagination is the best thing we have on our side mm. and we don't use that enough. And mm. so we've got to pay attention to what we are manifesting in the world and what we are imagining and what we hope to come. Um, mm. And we need to participate in our future becoming we, we have to participate in, in bringing the reign of God to earth. We need to participate in building the beloved community. We need to participate in making heaven on earth. Mm. That, that is not just a divine act. That is that we are participating with God who has become human. Mm. Um, and we have to remember that we bear the divine imprint. It, you know, if we follow the Christian tradition, we, we bear this divine imprint. And so, um, we have we have the particles in the uh, of God with us, mm. and we can manifest the future that that we want to have. But that requires imagination. That that's going to require some time and patience on our part. Mm. And it's a communal effort, I would think, right? It is very much a communal effort. You know, mm. I I like to ask the question to people: What kind of world do we want to inhabit? Mm. What is that imagination? And if we have that imagination, then let's manifest it. Mm. But, but if we don't have an imagination, it's probably because we are not talking to one another to get a sense. Mm. That's good. I really appreciate what you said too about sitting in the darkness because I know like in my, in my background, um, it's always the, the idea is always we want to move out of the darkness as quickly as we possibly can. You know, anything right. that's, anything that's bad, it's negative, it doesn't feel good. We want to push it away and try to get into the, into the light, so to speak. Right. That idea of sitting in the darkness really reminds me of the importance of there's something that we can learn when we're sitting in the tomb. There's something yes. that we can observe while we're sitting in the tomb. There's something that the darkness may be as bad as it is or as terrible as whatever's going on might be. It has something to teach us if we would just listen. Yes. Do you think that this like the Holy Saturday and Easter Sunday, is this like a, like, a, is it cyclical? And, and what I'm asking there is like, is it, is it something that we can experience over and over again? Or is Resurrection Sunday like a one-time event that we're waiting for uh, when everything is going to be transformed and, and better? Like, are there little moments along the way that we can celebrate moving from Holy Saturday to Easter Sunday? Well, I mean, I think that each time we lay down at night to sleep, mm. And we get up is a kind of resurrection. Yeah. Each time we sit with one another in lament and grief and we rise out of that with joy, that's a kind of resurrection. Mm. Um, 
so I would say that we participate in the resurrected life all the time. Hmm. Um, but, but whether we're paying attention to it or not, and, and with the lenses of that is a, is a different question, right? Hmm. Um, the, and, and so to that, I would say, you know, what kind of humans do we want to be? Yeah. Do we want to be the kind of humans who go through life without thinking or without feeling, or do we want to go through life and be the kind of humans who are fully embodied and attuned to this way of thinking? Mm. Uh, we have a choice to make. We have agency. Yeah, that's really good. So another quote for you. Um, you say, in a fast-paced and changing world, Christianity in particular has focused so supremely on right belief and orientation to orthodoxy that it has not been focused on the ways our social practices inform our faith. Uh, throughout my entire life, until I was in seminary, orthodoxy reigned and orthopraxy has not been part of the equation. And as I read that, like that, I don't know, that, that probably struck the biggest chord in me uh, of anything in your book. Uh, because this is like really true in my experience. Like, like I said, I went to seminary. Um, it was a Christian Missionary Alliance school. Uh-huh. And so going out into the world and doing the work of Christ was always emphasized. But right. when, I look, when I look back over my classes, and like especially a lot of like my theology classes, having the right beliefs was more often than not like really emphasized as sometimes more important right. uh, because we're often taught that those beliefs are what secure our eternal destination. Right. So I'm wondering, from your own studying and your own experience, when in church history did ideas and concepts uh, become maybe more important than practicing and living the way of Christ? And maybe like, what are some ways that everyday people, like our listeners, some of them work nine to five jobs, they're stay-at-home moms, like what are some ways that we can partner together to reverse that trend in our world and kind of maybe re-elevate orthopraxy back into the, the conversation? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we need to remember that church history um, is a narrative that is comprised by insiders mm. and by those who are making decisions on behalf of the tradition. Yeah. And we need to remember that um, those who might have had non-normative beliefs were not consulted. And so I think the reason why orthodoxy um, became the became the thing that people paid attention to was because of insiders and mm. was because that is where the power was held. Mm. Um, orthopraxy, y- y- you always have people th- talking about social good. Mm. Orthopraxy, though, doesn't really, I think, come into the fore as a, as a thing that we should be paying attention to really until much later. And, and we, and we need to, we need to, I think, wrestle with the time that orthodoxy has become sort of the flavor of a generation. Hmm. And, and for those who are, for those who need certainty, which is very much um, part of the evangelical tradition, mm. the tyranny of certainty has kept people tied to orthodoxy 
and has downplayed the real work in the world in addressing poverty and and homelessness and and all the isms that that keep people in chains mm. and so i you know i really want to you know invite people to think about can you can you live a life that is less certain and can you begin to look at the world around you as the place where we make God known, Mm. not through right belief, but through right action, which Mm. is about relationship to me. Um, And so I think that's what I would say about the church history question. Yeah. I think that, I think that's right, man. When I, when I think back again over my own history and growing up in the evangelical church, there was a, a sense where, there's a great discomfort around not knowing something. Right. And so the idea for me was always the more I know, uh, the more I'm studying, the more I'm trying to answer questions, the closer that I'm going to be to God. You know, I was uh-huh. kind of taught that, you know, God is in the pew and God is in the Bible. And those are the two places where you need to spend the majority right. of your time right. if you want to be close to God. And now I'm kind of in this space where, you know, I'm, I'm out of school I've been rethinking a lot of things, you know, the deconstruction, reconstruction, talking to lots of people. And I'm realizing that God is found in many, many, many other places than just those two places. And I'm finding when I come across people like you who are doing this work in the world and I connect with you and hear your stories, I'm like, dang, like God is, is really in a whole lot of other places than I thought he was in. Yeah. So I think the thing that we need to be careful about is only locating God in religious space or sacred space Mm. or the church. Um, What happens when God is present in all the place, Mm. in every place? How does that change our action in the world Mm. where we spend time, et cetera? Yeah. Yeah. I work, um, I work at, for Apple. I worked for Apple for um, nine years and Mm -hmm. I came to there, it's a retail store, retail environment. So I came there right out of pastoring a church. Mm-hmm. And so in my mind, you know, again, back, this is like 10 years ago. Um, I'm, there's a part of me that feels like I'm almost leaving God behind because that was mm. just like the world I came out of. And I yeah. come to this spot where now I'm interacting with all these people who in my church bubble, I never interacted with before. So I'm interacting right. with atheists, um, agnostics, LGBTQ, all sorts of different people. And I'm like super overwhelmed. But the more I got to know these people, I'm like, man, God is inside of you just as much mm-hmm. as he's inside of me. Yeah. And I've been able to recognize God in so many more places. And it's been so, so beautiful. For sure. It's great. It's great to hear that you work for Apple. I also worked for Apple. During oh, you did? Program. Yeah, in okay. Denver. Yeah. And um, I'm an intense introvert. And so it was a really challenging, <laughs> it was a really cha- <laughs> challenging environment to be in. Yeah. But I, I feel like if, if you want to think about spirituality and the ways in which Apple formulates its retail environment, it is about community. Mm. And there is, there is a sense of um, sacredness to that. Yeah. And, and I think that, that theology um, and Christianity at large can learn a lot from these varying communities um because when i was at apple we took care of each other yeah and um i remember 
one time one of my colleagues um, had to go to the hospital and was having um was very depressed and 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 whatnot and and I just went to be with him and and offered support and care mm. and that is what is it that's what's built into the system of apple mm. um in the retail environment um and and I think that we can learn a lot from that because that type of relationality is how we should be treating one another in the world. Yeah. When I look back over my nine years there, um, there's just so many instances where just like you said that I just felt connected to almost like a family. Mm-hmm. And um, I've often thought to myself, I feel like this is what church is supposed to be, <laughs> supposed yeah. to be like. Yeah. It's supposed to have this feel to it. And it's supposed to have this feel too, where just like at the Apple store, we welcome in customers, you know, we turn nobody away. It's one of our, you know, our big values is that everybody's welcome. You know, what if our churches were like that? What if we bonded together as a team, you know, as a store, as a church, but then our doors were just flung open to help anybody and everybody who had to come in and need it. What if? Yeah. We would revolutionize the world. That's right. That's right. So talk to me a little bit more about how, people who are listening now who are working these nine to five jobs who are stay at home moms, what does it look like for them to, if they're wrestling with feeling like orthodoxy is a little bit, has played a little bit too big of a part in their life and their past and their faith. And they're trying to be more practical orthopraxy. What are some, what are some things that they can do to kind of get the ball rolling on that in their own life and their own place in the world? Well, I kind of think about, um, you know, what kind of relationships do you want to have? Mm. And, and who are the people that you want to be relating with? Mm. Uh, what kind of world do you want to create? Because we can do that work. We, we don't need a pastor or a priest or a prophet to be guiding that. We, we have the sense um, to, to create community. And so, mm what kind of world, what, what kind of little micro world do we want to create? Mm. And how do we, how do we be with one another in the depths of the shit mm. and in the heights of the joy? Uh, let's do that work. And so I would say um, for those who are working a nine to five job or stay at home mom, who are the people that you want to, to be in relationship with? Mm. And and that's going to require maybe some imagination. Um, and maybe folks aren't thinking about, maybe folks are only thinking, I'm going to, I'm going to go to work and then I'm going to go home and be with my partner or maybe they're single. Um, but if we can begin to expand our vision hmm. for the world, yeah. that, that's what we need. We need to begin to expand the vision for the hmm. world. I think once you begin to recognize too, that God is everywhere. And that God is not just uh, located in a in a few special areas right. more so than other places. I think it's almost easier to realize that you have work to do in those places right. because God is already working in those places. That's so you right. can partner with God there, whether it's at your nine to five job, whether it's you know when you're cooking dinner for your toddler and they're throwing things all over the place, like whatever right. it is that's going right. on. Like God is there, and you can partner with God in the moment. Right. To do whatever it is that that God is doing. And that's such a different way. I know, especially for me, like in my upbringing and again, going back to church and the Bible and that's where God is the most. So even when I started this podcast, like it just felt weird. And then yeah. we started this Facebook group and people started coming to this Facebook group and I'm like, man, God is here 
just as much. Sometimes it feels like more so than he was in the church, you know? So I think that once we start to recognize that God is everywhere, it becomes easier to put ourselves in those, in those spaces. Yeah. Yeah. Was that a, was that a struggle for you just thinking about your upbringing? Cause you said you grew up in the evangelical world. So was that like a difficult shift for you at all to realize that God is working in other places than just the norm? Or was that like a, did you struggle with that at all? I mean, I think one thing to remember is that I am a queer person and, Mm. and also transgender. And I, I, I was always on the outside um, because, you know, in the evangelical world, um, if you're trans or LGBTQ, you're not, you're not accepted in large part yeah. um, when, when, I, when I was coming out and whatnot. And so for me, I had to make it up as I went mm. and I had to have faith that um, who I understood myself to be and that I felt called to be a theologian, that that, that was real, mm. and, and that I had a place in the world, and I had a place in vocational life. But I was told um, early on, um, God's not calling you. Mm. Um, and then, of course, I had two brain surgeries and survived a brain aneurysm. And then, of course, the church was like, oh, my God, it's a miracle. You are called. But it, <laughs> but it took that 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 crisis um which felt very contrived and whatnot um but it but it took that crisis for the church to to think differently and Mm -hmm. and i i i guess i just want to send a message to folks who who listen to your podcast who maybe feel on the outside of their tradition that that there's a place for them Mm -hmm. and um if you feel like you're an outsider, um, that may be the richest place to be to find the divine, mm. and and there's hope there. Um, and 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 you know, I I guess the other thing that I would say is don't let the normative structures dictate how you believe. Mm. Um, this is why we need imagination. Mm. So there's freedom to think outside of the box. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, freedom to think outside the box. Yes. Mm. Maybe talk a little bit more to that that person who is listening who um maybe they're being told uh that they don't have a place or they're told that they're not called or they're told that they're they don't have the gift. That's a big word that's often used in the right. in the church. You're not you're not gifted to, to do this, but you know, inside they feel like the rumblings of something that they're called to do. How how did what did it look like for you to overcome those those negative voices, like, is there something that they can, some place that they can turn, something that they can, they can do to get some help or to maybe uh, awaken that voice inside of them a little bit more? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because the patriarchy is alive and well in in traditions where where they feel threatened, mm. and we need to be wary of institutions and a commitment to the institution over people. Mm. Um, and I would say that if, if there's someone who's listening, who feels called, feels the rumbling, um, has been told, no, um, that's probably your sign that, that, that you are called mm. um, to, to do good in the world. Mm. Um, and 
and I would say that there's lots of places online um, and and probably even in their city where they can find like-minded people to help them build the vision to give birth to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I I do want to say I do want to caution people um, that you know we all we all have work to do mm-hmm. and it doesn't require a special calling to do social good or to do the work of liberation Mm. because we are all called to release the captive and we're all called to unbind the chains. Um, The maybe the call is whether we say yes to it, Mm. but that call is for all of us. Um, Mm. Every, every day my call is to feed the poor and clothe, um, clothe the the homeless Mm. um that's every day for me um and and every day i have to say yes to that or Mm. or no right um and so i try to live my life in a way that models justice and liberation um so that we can all get free that's really good because if we remain um held captive to our institutions or to our traditions then 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 we remain held captive to an idea that isn't founded i think in the ways of jesus i like that that there's maybe the maybe the question is there's not it's not so much am i called but what's the context of my calling yeah it's a better way to ask it yeah because we're all called like you said to set the captives free but our context might vary from from place to place person right that's right Hmm. Yeah, it reminds me, we just did this thing for Christmas where uh, we did a collection on the podcast where people send in money. And there's a, a woman in our town who we live about six miles away from uh, homeless people who are living under bridges, living in parks. And uh-huh. she fills up her car and she drives it around. She knows where these people live. Uh, she's friends with them. And she lets them come, take stuff out of her car, what they need, clothes, blankets, crackers, non-perishable food, and all these different kind of things. And so we collected all this money and what we were going to do is we were going to go do that ourselves. But then my wife and I were talking like, well, this woman's already doing it. So why don't we empower her to do it even more? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, what we tried to do in our context, is we tried to collect all this stuff. We brought it to her. She had to bring in another car because we had so much stuff for her, yeah, but it was such a great. magical moment uh, to see her be the hands and feet of Christ. Yeah. Give her a little bit more to help her in her context. So yeah, really good. And, that, and that's our work. That's our work yeah. to do. Yeah, that's right. That's good. So one more question for you. In your book, you talk uh, a little bit about uh, the role of Sabbath and the role of uh, siesta uh, mm-hmm. in, your, in your life. So I'm wondering, why is rest important for you, in particular as a liberation theologian? And why should rest be important for um, everyone as well? Because I know for myself, taking a rest is sometimes something I don't, I don't do. And so when I read what your own story and a little bit about what you do. I was like, yeah, I think Dr. Robin has a point here. So talk to me a little bit more about that. Well, I think we need to remember that we live in a world that is um, completely framed by production for production's means. Yes. And that's called capitalism. And Mm. capitalism doesn't have any time or space for rest. Mm. And so rest and the siesta and i'm an evangelist for the siesta um the siesta is a mode of resistance that that every day i put down my phone i put away my computer 
I lay down, I rest my eyes, or I sit on the couch, um, and I siesta. And, and that is in complete resistance to the need to produce mm-hmm. all the time. Um, and so for me, it is a way to push back on the system that forces me to always be producing, always mm-hmm. be looking at my likes on Instagram or looking at my mentions on Twitter or mm-hmm. looking at whoever has responded to Facebook. No, I'm going to stop. I'm going to put a bookmark in the word and I'm going to rest. And we should all be doing that. Yeah. When I was growing up, my, one of my teachers always said, you know, basically he had a phrase was plan your work and work your plan. And if you're, if you're not succeeding in a certain area or, you know, your results aren't where they're supposed to be, it's basically your fault. And so for me, I've always been almost like this workaholic person who feels like I need to do more not so much to prove to the world around me, but to prove to myself that I'm doing as much as I can to get the results that I need to, to get. And so I love that idea that siesta or rest is almost like a form of resistance yep. against that idea that I'm not wired to just keep producing. My value is not in what I produce. My value is in who I am. That's right. And, yeah. if, and, if, we, and if we focus on what we're able to produce, so we place our value in that, then we do become people who just work all the time and when we have no relationship. And mm-hmm. so the, the whole siesta thing and putting a bookmark in, in our word is so that we can reconnect with ourselves and, mm-hmm. and with nature and with what is around us. Mm-hmm. Um, working all the time makes us into automatons, mm-hmm. just makes us into machines. And that's not, that's not the way of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Even Jesus went away to rest, right? right. So if we're, if we're going to model our life after this person that, who worked for justice, um, that person also rested, went away for Sabbath, went away um, and rested. I don't know about you, but I know for me, like, there's a question that just popped into my mind, but why the things that I produce, like the things that I do, whether it's, whether it's I'm studying or like, like you had mentioned, you're an introvert. I am as well. So I love to study. I love to read. Um, I love to write. I love to do even this podcasting stuff and that kind of stuff brings me life in yeah. a sense of where it brings me joy. And I find that when I'm not doing it, there's a certain part of me that feels almost inside like it's dying for lack of a better word. Like uh-huh. it doesn't have as much life as it did. But at the same time, like my wife had pointed out to me that it's, it's very easy for me, I think, to cross over that line of I'm doing this because it gives me joy to I'm doing this because I feel like I have to do it. I feel right. like if I'm not doing it, like, do you struggle with that, finding that balance and does siesta help you take a breather and kind of get yeah, that balance I mean, back? Yeah, I think the siesta helps me take a breather. Mm. Um, my work is the work that I can't imagine not doing. Yes, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, and so because, because I'm so driven to do this work and to do public theology in the way that I'm doing it and to create content, what is required of me is some some practice of reconnecting with myself mm-hmm. and and sometimes that's drinking tea sometimes that's taking a siesta but putting a bookmark in things is is a spiritual discipline and it's mm-hmm. part of the spirituality that I'm trying to foster and you know trying to spread the word about yeah I think it's important because it's not something that's talked about. I mean, especially right, right. especially in the evangelical world. I mean, it's just always about doing, 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 doing. Right. 
Right. You know, the more you read, the more you pray, the more you go to church, the more and more and more and more and more. And so I think right. that your voice in this is particularly helpful. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So we're just about out of time uh, and this has been immensely helpful. So uh, thank you for the conversation. But before you go, uh, where can people find you online and are you working on anything new that you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, so certainly pick up Activist Theology. It's yep. the book that came out in October that we talked a little bit about today and would really love to hear what folks think about the book. Um, feel free to reach out to me. You can reach me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I'm irobin on Twitter and Instagram, and that's the letter I-R-O-B-Y-N. And on Facebook, it's my full name. Um, And my public page, because I'm almost out of Facebook slots, is Dr. Robin Henderson Espinosa. Um, I'm really curious what people have to say about the book, Activist Theology, and I'm really serious about hearing from folks um, what resonates, what doesn't, um, what, what should be different, what not. I'm, I'm really curious. Um, the co-director of the Activist Theology Project and I, uh, Reverend Anna Galladay, we are launching the Activist Theology Podcast, and that launches on January 16th. So check us out where you get um, your podcast. The, the teaser is up. Um, we're still waiting for it to populate on iTunes but I hear that it's available on Spotify. So you can listen to the teaser awesome. uh, there, the Activist Theology podcast. And then my, my new project is on bodies, embodiment, and democracy. And mm. um, thinking about um, bodies and embodiment as a vision for the kind of world that we want to see. And so that's the, that's the next book. Um, and I'm up here in upstate New York uh, working and writing and getting my thoughts together before I start my semester at Duke. Um, but th- those are the things that, that, that I'm working on and that, that I can share. And then the, lastly, I would say, check out the Activist Theology Project. You can find us online at activisttheology.com. And just remember, activist and theology share a T. And um, it's a mashup word. And then I'm online at irobin.com. Awesome. Well, this has been amazing. Uh, we will go out there and look for you. And I will tell our listeners that uh, Dr. Robin is 100%. Uh, when someone posts on their uh, Facebook page about the book, uh, they are right there to uh, share their thoughts and respond. So go and look it up, read the book, and I'll put the link in the show notes. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye.
Work.